Welcome to Mastering Executive Leadership, where you get real-time insights and practical advice from North America's top executive coaching strategist, Audra Christie. Audra's approach is simple. Deliver the unvarnished truth, one leader at a time. That means you're getting a straightforward, honest approach to evolving into the leader or executive you've always aspired to be. Join us every week as Audra interviews some of the most successful leaders in the world who share their leadership journey, lessons learned, and best practices for success. Whether new to the C-suite, a seasoned executive, or an emerging leader, you'll find practical advice in every episode. If you're ready to step into a new level of leadership, it's time to dive in. Let's get started. Welcome back to another exciting episode, and today is super special. I get to speak to the one and only Brian Miller. Now, you'll hear a ton of adoration in my voice because this is one of the most respected leaders that I've ever come across. He held me accountable. He knows what he's doing, and I couldn't think of a better person to talk to you about mastering executive leadership. So get your pen and paper, sit back, take notes, because listen, it's going to change your life. So as we dive in, Brian, tell us about you. Well, thank you, Audra. What a, what a great start. Tell me about you. Well, I've uh, kind of started out in a retail family. So I actually had a CEO for a dad. So my wife used to say I learned more around the kitchen table around executive leadership than I have anywhere else. But I think that early days of having a dad that was a CEO of several companies, and he was also a Marine, so he had a lot of structure and a, you know, a lot of respect. And uh, But I also learned not to be intimidated by anyone. So for me, when I you know later in life joined Walmart and after a lot of really good experience with the May Company and different retail companies and different structures, uh, working at Walmart at the, at the executive level was exciting because they needed a lot of HR, but it also um, through working with my dad and other leaders, I learned, again, just not to be intimidated by anybody. And if you're not intimidated by somebody, you can actually listen better. You can um, really interpret what's happening in the business. So I just wanted to start with, you know, the early days of my life were uh, influenced by a, a great parental unit group. My mother was very strong. My dad was strong, but also taught me a great deal about integrity and how to lead and how to be respectful, which I think is the foundation for for any relationship. So um, I found myself in uh, retail from really 1984, working in department stores, the human resource generalist in stores, uh, moved to a corporate environment. And I think it was 1989. I was a director of, of recruiting for a company called Foley's Department Store, which was a, a department store that later became part of what is now Macy's. And so I started my career uh, doing uh, store manager recruiting for half the company. So, you know, finding and uh, doing succession planning, finding talent. Uh, then I, I did also did college recruiting and did a lot of recruiting early on. And I had a, a great mentor. Uh, who really I attribute to helping me uh, get a diverse enough career to become a, an executive HR person later. I remember him coming to me and saying, well, I'm, I want you to go run compensation for a while. And I thought, oh my goodness, 
I'm going to be stuck in a room with a little visor and a little light. Nobody will ever see me again. I'll be in some room. Um, early days of Excel spreadsheets and all that. But what I learned is I actually loved the discipline of how you pay people and how you incentivize people for different behaviors. So I was very lucky to go from recruiting to a compensation career where I learned, you know, other disciplines of HR, dabbled in, you know, some healthcare issues uh, or opportunities. And then I went into the field for a while. I was regional head of HR for four states. And so you start learning how to, uh, you know, manage people from distances and setting expectations and managing in a governance or a structure. Um, and so that was, that was really great. But I had so many great early experiences in my life from, you know, the kitchen table to being exposed to different elements of HR and really learn to be an operational HR person. So I always thought, as you know, Audrey, you don't do something unless it's positive to the business or it's, you know, obviously a uh, legal necessity. But what, do you, what are we putting up this activity on and how does it help the business? So um, I am been married for 38 years to the same woman, which is pretty remarkable. Uh, the key there is to marry your best friend. Marry your best friend and to listen and to listen. Yeah, boy. Yeah. <laughs> so I've been married 38 years to Elizabeth, wonderful, my wonderful life partner. We have three children, three adult children that are 36, 34, and 29. And uh, so we just have a, a great life and uh, spent 18 years at Walmart. Uh, and that was an incredible wild ride. And uh, again, I, I mentioned earlier, but it was very, very fortunate to get this. Walmart in 1998 when there was very, very little HR structure at all. I called it the great wasteland of no HR. And uh, it just tells you about the, the development of companies. You know, when Sam Walton was around in the early days, he didn't really want somebody called HR because he wanted his store managers to take full ownership and responsibility of the human resource function. And so that kind of permeated the culture of the company. You know, they woke up one day and they were $119 billion company, one of the largest companies in the nation, if not the world. Uh, and they still kind of had that adage that, you know, HR is bureaucratic and really we shouldn't get involved with that. And by that point, they understood that they were way behind and that we had to really pivot quickly. So I got there at a, at a great time because all my May company experience and that May company, my vice chairman was a former um, consultant. So I, I was involved with succession planning and all these tools. And I remember not to embarrass Walmart here, but in my first year with Walmart, we're going into performance appraisal season. And I said, well, where's the increase matrix? And they said, well, what's that? You know, where you tie performance with where you are in a pay matrix and understand which to pay people. They had nothing like that. And then I said, well, okay, I'm head of global recruiting. I need to see you know, all, all of our, uh, you know, our people, like our organizational charts, and they didn't exist. They literally didn't exist because they thought that was bureaucratic. So, you know, even Walmart and different places like that have to pivot and structure and think, okay, we're this 110 pound elephant now. We have to really be different in how we approach things. And so that's a little bit about me weaved into me personally and then also. Some of my business experiences that brought me to my experiences at Walmart. Well, I didn't know that your dad was a CEO. Yeah. So first time I'm hearing this. Yeah. 
And I love what you said about not being intimidated because so many leaders out there today are fearful and intimidated. And what was it that clicked for you to say, you know what? I'm just not going to be afraid. I don't care what your title is. I don't care how long you've been in the company. I'm going to always stand up for the business, stand up for my team, stand up for the associates. How did you kind of adopt that, mm, I guess, frame of mind? Mantra, mindset, yeah. Um, it's interesting. Well, the first, I, I, I first brought up my childhood because I think it was a little easier for me uh, being that my dad was a CEO and a former Marine. And, you know, I kind of grew up with a lot of respect and structure in my life. Um, but I, I guess the, the focus for me is my passion to help the business. So if you always get back to where's the business going? You know, you, if you talk to a leader as an HR representative or an HR executive and you say, where's the business going? Um, I, I'll give you a perfect example. Um, when I went to Walmart International, I became the senior VP of everything outside of the U.S. for Walmart. In the early days, and, I, and I'll get to your point. I think I'll try to answer your point, but, but in an example, uh, the early days of Walmart International, it was about. 12 billion when I got there. When I left, it was 119 billion. So it tells you the unbelievable growth pattern. But the, the thing about it is that they went from command and control to needing CEOs that are very autonomous that can make decisions on their own. So the business was moving so quickly that you didn't really have time to do anything other than try to help the business and get in front of the business to create an environment to help them. You know, from my upbringing, I guess I realized that, you know, everybody's important as somebody else. We all have different skills. Don Soderquist, one of our former vice chairmen of Walmart, said, you know, he was no, no impor more important than anybody else. He just had life skills and business experiences that allowed him to be vice chairman of the company. But it didn't mean he was more important personally than anybody else. So you have to just kind of always put life in perspective that, you know, we all put our socks on you know, one foot at a time, you know, we all have issues in our lives. Uh, and, and just to really get, understand when you kind of work, really, you're there to, to create a function, to provide a, a framework that ultimately ends the customer having a better experience. So for me, it was like, forget about the intimidation, who you're talking about, what are their needs? What are their wants? What are they trying to accomplish in the business? In what time frame, and how does my HR and me as a HR team work within that framework to to make them successful? So once that see, that that person you're dealing with understands you're there to help provide success for them, then the relationship changes very rapidly. In my in my opinion, wow, you said a lot there that brought me back to our time together, and I don't think I was ever intimidated by you. But you were very clear about your expectations and you were very clear about the amount of rope <laughs> that you would give to me personally. And I knew you weren't messing around and I knew the quality. I just knew that, man, I don't ever want to get on the other side of Brian Miller. So that was always <laughs> how I approached you. But I felt respected. You know, most leaders and associates want to be seen, valued and heard. And you did those things for me. But one of the things I coach in my practice is the infamous one pager. You have to be executive ready. 
not just on paper, but you have to look the part. So take me back to when you discovered that this one pager was like the minimum price of entry for you. And how did you teach others either before me or after me that this is like, you got to figure this out because you'll never have executive presence without it. I think, um, let me tell you a story again. I'm going to go back to my international days. Uh, When I first got an opportunity, and I'll come back to the one pager of how that kind of got solidified in my brain in terms of the strategy. But when I first got to Walmart International, as I mentioned before, it was just 12 billion. We were about in, I guess, about six countries. And we were marching very, very quickly. We started buying very mature companies like ASDA, uh, which was a very, very large independent company in the UK. Uh, we were buying, uh, you know, larger, more independent companies around the world and having to integrate them. And Walmart in the past, Walmart International was a very command and control environment. So we had a lot of CEOs out there that just kind of took, took direction from, from Bentonville. Well, we outgrew that very rapidly. So the issue was, and the, uh, quite frankly, the, my predecessor got fired because he was so frozen in an in inability to make good decisions because there was so much data coming in and there was no structure to the data. So he would just take a note, put it down and take another note, put it down and he couldn't make decisions. So when I got there, I realized that the CEO of Walmart International in Argentina called me and said, Brian, we have to give everybody a 20% raise. I said, well, hold on a second. How do you know that? He said, well, we're experiencing hyperinflation. And he said, everybody else is doing the same thing. And I'm like, well, you know, we, we can't make decisions off rumors or things of that nature. But there was, there was no remuneration. There was no, um, you know, total remuneration reviews. We didn't know what was going on in the markets we were existing in. Then we lost the president of Walmart Mexico. And where's the succession planning? Where's the data on our talent? There was none of that. So literally, I had to create an environment where we went out with the, the Hay Group, which is a famous consulting firm that does compensation. And we started learning about, in all the markets we exist in, what is the compensation data? What's happening? Are we at par with the other companies? And so we started creating uh, global remuneration systems where our leaders could make good decisions off good data. And so the one pager really is the ability to take a lot of data in the world and boil it down to a single sheet of paper, or in this case, we would have many, many reviews depending on the country and what's happening. But the one pager basically is a way to give leaders a quick way to make good decisions off real data in real time. Another example of international is, as I mentioned, we were losing talent. We didn't even know the talent that existed. We hadn't done any talent mining. We were not doing executive development. And what we found ourselves with as we bought these autonomous companies and got bigger and bigger, uh, we needed a different kind of executive. Instead of a command and control executive, we needed executives that could make decisions on their own within a governance and a framework. So I don't know if that helps you at all, but international running a global environment, we had to do all these data collection exercises to pull, whether it's compensation or talent or data, uh, to create frameworks for people to work within. And as your company grows and becomes more developed, you have to have leaders that are more autonomous and make better decisions. Always, again, 
within a governance and within a standard operating procedure. But you have to have people, especially in retail, because it's a fast business, right? You have to have people that make decisions very quickly. So the one pager was kind of a uh, evolution of me understanding that in big, large, complicated businesses, as Walmart is, you have to give your leaders the ability to synthesize and create, you know, one pager or any other data that they can make good decisions about. And keep going. It needs to be crisp <laughs> and clean. <laughs> well, yeah. So you became like you were like known for, listen, if you're going to ask Brian for approval or even to just talk about an idea, you better master the one pager. And I just remember one time I was working on one for you and you needed to give it to the CMO. Yeah. And I remember walking down. It was like 3.30 in the afternoon. I put it in a folder. You didn't even look. You didn't even open the folder. You just took the folder out of my hand and marched down the aisle. And I said, he really trusts me. Like I just said, he must really trust me that he's not even looking at what. And I try to tell my clients, you have to figure this out. And so many people don't get it. I'll look at their presentations. Where's your executive summary? Like the goal is to get them to yes quickly. And you can't do that with 50,000 pages. But also, it's not just the one pager. It's making sure the information makes sense and not having you know, ancillary data on there that doesn't make sense. So, yeah, it's got to be relevant, time bound, specific. You know, I, I forget the adage, but, uh, you know, they say that if you write a letter, you know, a seven or eight page letter, it's kind of lazy, right? Because you don't edit, you just write all this stuff. You know, what you have to do on a one pager is you have to synthesize the information, know the information well enough to be able to create a concise, document right that leaders can make decisions about and that does show trust you know audra i mean that's exactly what i had because in my my lieutenants you know i had faith that i knew exactly what the product was going to be when i opened that folder you know and at walmart it's such no nonsense because the business is moving so fast you know it's what is it now it's a half a trillion dollar business annually you know, and so you and I are right in the heart of that, trying to make decisions quickly and precisely and, you know, with, with good outcomes. So that's exactly right. I knew the product you would give. And so that's where I could walk down the hall and get to my boss, the chief merchandising officer, and make good decisions. Now, again, that sounds easy, right? But to, to get to that point, right, is a lot of work and a lot of editing and a lot of coaching and developing and a lot of trust. And you brought this up earlier, but when I interviewed people uh, that were going to be on my team, Audra, as you know, I would always say that I like to set expectations up front. I like to be very clear about specifically what success looks like. Um, and then I'll give you enough leash to hang yourself at that, you know, because the business is too big. You can't, you can't micromanage in this environment. If you do, you'll, you won't survive. So I always gave you enough leash that you could do your job and be independent and you could actually get with your customers and make good decisions and come back to me and create that one pager to go upstream to leaders to make great decisions on a very quick and timely basis. But again, some people don't survive that because you have enough leash, you can hang yourself. So that's a, that's that right. you, you remember the old terms. 
And remember, you all wouldn't know that, but there was an empty office across from Brian intentionally. So if you were ever called into the principal's office, he didn't do it in his office. He took you across the hall to the empty office (laughs) to have the conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that creates even more uh, seriousness to the environment. It does, right? And I think there should be a healthy dose of fear in the workplace. Because A, you should be treated just like a CEO and always think that your work could end up on the CEO's desk. Because oftentimes it will. (laughs) Now, you didn't lead by fear, right? No, no, of course not. You didn't lead by fear, but I knew you weren't messing around. And I think um, as I, you know, coach leaders, leadership's in a state of emergency because everyone wants it, but they don't understand what it takes to get there, nor... Do they put the work in to sustain their positional power there as well? Can you talk about the three leadership attributes that you think um, emerging leaders should um, work on today or acquire or invest in themselves? Yeah. Well, first and foremost is always integrity. I mean, it, it just has to be there. You, you can't hire a narcissist. Uh, and it, you know, with, that has to, an individual has to feed their ego first. I mean, people somehow do get in places of, of high levels. It's well, going to politics, but we have great examples of people that are narcissists and have great egos. So first of all, you have to find a leader. You have to have the proper amount of ego, obviously, to lead, right? To be a big leader, you have to have a healthy ego. So I'm not saying you have to be completely void of ego. You have to have a, a pretty big ego to learn, to run large organizations. But you also have to um, take care of your people and be kind and respectful um, so that your organization respects you as an individual and so that you, you treat the organization well. So it's, it's about others and the success of others around you. And you have to have a leader that has the ability to surround themselves with people that are smarter than they are, and they have to be okay with that. And so that is really hard. And it's hard to, to judge who will be in that situation. But uh, for me, it's, you know, if you find that leader that has a big ego, but is a healthy ego, and that has the ability to, again, hire people that are smarter than them, so they make great decisions, and it lifts everybody up, you have to have leaders that can have a vision of where the business is going, but then that leader has to have the ability to articulate that vision to the team, to the troops, to the organization. You also have to have a leader, in my in my opinion, that uh, can build the bridge to where the company is, to where the company wants to go to be successful. And you know, I remember listening to Ender Nui, who was an amazing you know, former CEO of PepsiCo, and talking about. Uh, you have to set the vision, set the structure, and then articulate where where the company is going to meet the needs of the customer. So it's all about, in my opinion, leadership is about, again, having an individual that's healthy from a mental perspective and, and leadership perspective, surrounding themselves with great people and challenging them and developing them, but the ability to delegate tremendous amounts of information. Uh, and then again, uh, understand where the business is going and be able to articulate to the greater organization how to get there. Um, Those to me are are, um, 
you know, regardless where technology is going, for me, that's so important in the individual because it combines, think about what we're talking about, combining individual behaviors, leadership, ethics, with also understanding the nature of the business they're in and where the business is going and then articulating the, this, the, that vision to the organization, that's a CEO to me. Um, so it's communication, it's vision, it's bridging it through structure and allowing yourself to, to hire people to get you there through great talent and development. So I don't know if that makes sense. I don't know if that's three, but that's, that's kind of in my mind how I feel about Very helpful. A lot of uh, my clients, as well as I think some of the listeners tuning in, they struggle with giving feedback that's memorable and one time because there's this fear that particularly with this generation, if we don't coddle them, if we don't tell them that they're great, then sometimes we will hold back. And I know that was never the case for me. You would pull me aside and say, knock it off and don't do it again. And I would need to go and figure out what that really meant. (laughs) <laughs> but can, can you help the audience understand the importance of giving feedback in a timely manner and the framework in which you did it? Because I can recall some situations where I would tell you something and I knew you were going to action and I would have to say, Brian, um, maybe tomorrow. Nope, I'm going to do it right uh, right now. So could you just help us understand the framework and why it's important? Sure. Because you never repeated yourself, by the way. Okay, well, that's efficient. Well, <laughs> you never repeated yourself. <laughs> There's something that I used to talk about a lot, and th- this is five points, and it's kind of the uh, Fred Smith, uh, the CEO and founder of FedEx, talked about this at a leadership conference out of that one day. And this all flows into the, the, what you're asking. But the first one is when you hire somebody or even a team, it's what do you expect of me? So, so number one is, you have to set expectations early on. Um, and how many leaders just maybe six months later finally get around to telling people what they actually want? And then they can't understand why their expectations aren't being met when they haven't really articulated what they are. So I don't care if it's an individual or an organization, it's what you expect of me specifically. What is expected? Number two would be, how am I doing? What's the feedback? Am I, am I, uh, meeting those goals? Am I meeting those goals in a way that was expected and or is is positive? So, you know, feedback has to be almost immediate. So tell me what you want me to do and how you want me to do it. Number two is, am I doing it well? What's my feedback? And give me structured feedback. And number three is, you know, what do I have to do to get ahead? Like, what does success actually look like? How do I get promoted? You know, is it who I hang out with? Is who I have a beer with after work? No, it, it, for me, it was always when I know you have the ability to do the job above what you're already doing, then I know it's time to promote you. You know, number four is where do I get justice? How do I get fair treatment? Um, if things aren't going well, how do we articulate how to change that? And then number five is what I'm, is what I'm doing important. Um, and that's one people miss a lot. It's important for people to know that what you are doing makes, makes a difference and it's important to the business, which helps people psyche that they know, okay, I'm not just over here doing cogs, you know, on a wheel and just doing something. What you do really is important. 
Uh, and a return on a thank you is infinite. You cannot ever underestimate what a, th- a true thank you means to people. And so the return on investment of a thank you is infinite. I never heard thank you from you. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yes, you did. We didn't get past number three. When you got a performance appraisal and I gave you a raise, that's thank you. <laughs> that's not true, Audra. You can tell. Absolutely. Thank yous come in a very different way. You know what a thank you is for you? Remember what you just said a few minutes ago? I had a mission and you knew it and you brought me a one pager and I didn't even look. At you, But you noticed that I didn't look in there. And so as I grabbed that folder and I walked around the corner to go up to executive row, you had great pride in your work because you knew I didn't even look at it. I did. Sometimes a thank you is not a literal thank you for this. It is the confidence that you had in your work, which I had to go do my job. That was a great thank you, but it came in a different form. It was. And sometimes you used to say, your badge still works. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. There's, a, there's always a little sense of humor there in my coaching. <laughs> no, this is so helpful because I love that point that you said, you have to set expectations early. And when you do it six months later, you can't expect for people to automatically figure it out or adjust. I did want to bring up this one story that I think will be powerful for those who are listening. Um, when you have confidence in someone on your team that you know that they can deliver at a high level and others don't have it, you always made it safe for each person to shine. And I remember I had, everyone knows I have Ava Grace and, um, the caretaker was unavailable that day and you needed something delivered, I think to the board. And I said, Hey, Brian, I can't come in today. And he was like, okay, fine stay home with Ava. And the team just wasn't delivering what you expected. And I'd never asked to bring Ava to work. But I remember you called me and said, Audra, have you seen the deck that the team is producing? And I said, no. And he said, listen, I know you're home, but I'm going to need you to come in here and get this right. And I'm like, Brian, I can't bring Ava to work. He was like, you can bring her to Uncle B's office and I'll watch her. But you need to get in here because this is like, oh, my God. (laughs) And I felt like a level of pride that you counted on me because you knew my aesthetic probably matched yours. Um, But the team wasn't very happy that I had to be called in by you. But you made it clear that this is where she's gifted. This is where she shines. And I need her to be in here. So can you talk a little bit about how leaders can make it safe? to allow people to shine and not take away from the greater good of the team? Absolutely. I think, I think that's a great example of where special times and special needs sometimes calls for, you know, special action, right? So there's every day, right? Where things go just like you want them to, you know, oh, we get three weeks to produce this document. You and your team go away and work. And it's this lovely little environment where everybody's doing great. And then you have crisis mi- minutes, right? And I, and I think that um, during those crisis moments of, where the business absolutely demands, you know, a, a level of uh, execution well beyond any time frame we would have expected, then you have to step up. Um, and I think what's important for the team is, is that 
um, you make it okay by telling you, you guys did a good job. You took it, you took it to a, yeah, a certain level, but Audra has a skill level that it's going to take us over the finish line, if you will. And, you know, it wasn't the fault of anybody. It was just the collective team had to come together to pull it up, pull it off in that day. Um, so there, you know, there's no, there was nothing wrong with any of that, but it also creates an opportunity to say, well, then is there a, a level of uh, development in the team that needs to be tweaked, right? Is there, is there, uh, because Audra stayed home with Ava Grace one day and the team couldn't quite get to what we needed, then that's okay. Actually, for you and I as leaders, it created an opportunity to say, what do we need to do differently? Do we need different people on the team? You know, it's everything can be looked at uh, and think in a very rational, thoughtful way, mm-hmm. right? It doesn't have to be, you know, screaming or get in here or what are you thinking? You know, all those human drama, I think, is um, ineffective and actually negative. And so that's why you have to come at things from understanding everybody's humans, everybody has families, and, you know, the business has demands, but you have to work through all that where everybody, at the end of the day, comes home with their, uh, you know, their their egos intact and they're not too bruised. But through, 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 the, uh, through those crises, uh, right, become better leaders, better developers, and... Uh, the other thing I would tell you, we've talked a lot about, you know, uh, data-driven decision uh, and creating one-pagers. What you're describing is, again, creating information so leaders can make decisions. And so, one thing I would always say is, why are we in the crisis mood in the first place? Why is this information all of a sudden something somebody... Now, executives always dream up stuff that doesn't exist, right? Uh, my point is, we should be producing great data, great information on the business on a weekly, daily, or monthly basis that should be produced, right, and published so leaders don't have to make one-off decisions. So you don't have to have like a surface environment. Um, So what I always try to do is create with you and your teams and everybody else is create an environment where the, the leader was getting regular data in a structured way that they were comfortable making decisions. But of course, you know, always, especially at Walmart and uh, high uh, dynamic organizational environments, people are going to make stuff up that they don't have. And so that creates crisis and it creates those environments where people have to, you know, jump off the building, get something done and <laughs> that, that type of thing. No, I love this. And I'm just cracking up because I was able to do that same thing on my team. But the other thing, which I think is so important for the people that, are listening is that when you're not the expert, you bring the expert. And this whole notion that you need to know everything and you don't want to give your team exposure. I remember specifically there was an expert on my team and I would always bring her for those 15, 20 minutes, A, so she can get the exposure, she can understand what you really wanted. And it just really increased her level of pride and you know self-esteem. And so many leaders they want to keep it all to themselves, and you didn't value that. No, in fact, that kind of gets back to um, you know you, you don't have to be the smartest person in the room. Um, you have to have um, the ability to surround people, surround yourself with people that are much smarter than you are, which I did with you. Obviously, you're a lot smarter than I am. Um, but you know that that's where 
having the right kind of leaders is important. And I and I loved it when you brought your your people with you because it did give me a chance to not only uh, see them perform, but gave me a chance to assess them, but yet also praise them. And uh, you know that's always a that's always a blast is when you are in an environment you're all working hard and it's dynamic and there's a lot of pressure, but laced in that are great you know, great human factors and great human success stories. And we're developing the person you brought and they feel good because they go home and tell their family, you know, golly, I got to be part of this, the senior VP decision-making, which ultimately got to the CEO or the CMO. And yeah, it gives people pride. It gives people, you know, they want to work harder. They want to work smarter. It's just a, it's a virtual, wonderful circle. Instead of being crisis mode and keeping all that stuff to themselves, I always found that, you know, that's so much more fun to include people and develop people appropriately. You know, you don't want to bring it. You can't bring everybody at every meeting because a lot of meetings you and I have had incredibly sensitive information. Um, and so, you know, you have to be diligent. You have to do it appropriately. But um, I think those are some of my favorite moments is seeing breakthrough moments, uh, people that are just coming along and doing really well. This leads into you have to let, I think as a leader, let your team know that you have their back and to believe in them and to empower them to do their best. Because if I didn't feel like you had my back, I don't know if I would have run through the wall as hard. I would have got to the wall, but you always have my back. My team knew that I had their back and I was detached. Like I was, I didn't care if he or she were smarter than me. I just knew we needed to get it done and we never wanted to disappoint you. Now, for those of you who are listening, Brian is being very humble. He's being very modest, but he's not to be played with. Like he knew exactly what the organization needed. He could speak, I guess, at the drop of a dime. And I'm not the best microphone person. You know, that wasn't my thing, but you overcompensated for that because you knew. I was gifted someplace else and you made it okay for me not to be, you know, the one that's always grabbing the mic because that just wasn't who I was. And you wasn't going to have me squirm or stumble over my words because you were able to do that. And I think if you all just take a lot of these nuggets today, empower your team and overcompensate for them in areas where they're not as good. So the collective could look good. Yeah. I think that's a, such a great point is that, you know, you hear the adage, you know, uh, manage everybody the same. I think that's, you know, obviously that's true as it relates to, you know, equity, but, and, and fairness, but everybody's different, you know, and I remember Walmart used to give me people that weren't successful in other areas and I would make them very successful. Uh, and the reason for that is I, I would find out, you know, what are the skills, what are the likes and what are the individual strengths of this individual and I would try to maximize that to your point and let them grow and get, and then they, as they build confidence, then they would just outperform everyone because I gave them the ability to do that. And to your point, if somebody is just not naturally comfortable, you know, in a, in a large environment going to a microphone, then, you know, you can get around that. That's okay. And you have to, you know, have, you know, the basic ability, obviously, to communicate in front of groups. And you did fine, Audra, but it's not, it's not something you were just naturally uh, wanted to do necessarily. And that's okay because it's the greater team that gets it done. Uh, I mean, wow. 
clearly you all can tell, like, I just adore Brian here. We have so many good stories. So, Brian, um, as we kind of wind down a little bit. Well, let me, let me, let me interrupt. Oh, I have one please. more thought on that is that to tell you, the audience, how much I trusted Audra. A lot of times uh, when, let's say, I would walk down the hall and my boss was the chief merchandising officer of the corporation. I'd walk down the hall and Audra would be in there talking to him. And a lot of leaders would be like, what in the world were you doing in there? You were in there without me. What were you talking about? They couldn't handle it. If I walked by and Audra was in the chief merchandising officer's office and they were head down working, I was like, yes, success. I mean, Audra's in there engaging with the customer and getting stuff done. And I don't have to be there so I can work on something else. So instead of being, oh my gosh, what is she doing? What is she saying? Why am I not in there? I don't, I'm not aware of what she's doing. I felt so relieved that she was in there actually coaching, developing, getting the customer what they needed. And she was getting on with the business. She was servicing our customer. So I would walk by and feel great relief that I could go, you know, focus my attention on other things. And so, uh, you know, as leaders, you have to be comfortable with, do your people have the autonomy, right? And have you made it a safe space for them to go do their job? And even meeting with your boss without you is not only okay, but it's wonderful. So I think that's a a great point that I, I wanted to emphasize that you are big enough leader to do it and i was a big enough leader and comfortable that you could do it and i wasn't like you know what were you in there doing i mean that's that's 101 stuff but so many people don't get that that's such a good point because there was the opposite of that in the company where oh my gosh if you were even caught dead saying hello to somebody you were called into the principal's office and i was so happy i wasn't on that side of the house right (laughs) exactly (laughs) So I think that's a good point is that in, in my team, I wanted all my people to go and, and just engage, do your job. And I don't have to be there. That's, the business is too big and too complicated and moves too fast for me to think I have to be in every meeting. I love that. I forgot about that. But thank you for that. Good times. Sorry I cut you off. I just think that was a, a, an important point. No, it's okay. What is it that I didn't ask you? that you think leaders need to know right now to change the trajectory of their team, to change their um, atmosphere, to, you know, increase engagement. Like if you had one or two things that you wanted to leave with them, what would it be? I think one of the most important things, and I've always said that I, I was more operations focused than I was HR focused. And I think the reason I was successful at Walmart is because I was always going to the leader saying, where are we going? Where's the business going? So, you know, you, HR, in my opinion, especially operational HR, has to really be in lockstep with the organization in terms of where the business is going. If HR doesn't understand where leadership is going and the talent necessary for wherever we're going, and the structure, uh, the governance, the standard operating procedures, like, where are we going? And then HR can step back and say, okay, well, if that's the vision of where we're going, and we're going to try to get there in five years. What kind of talent do we need? What kind of structures do we need? 
What kind of pay do we need? What kind of incentives do we need? So HR can't be two and three years behind. So that's why I think it's so very important. I was in every staff meeting of every merchandise group ever. So I knew exactly how what was going on with the PL. I understood where we were suffering for lack of talent. And so I think it's so very important that uh, as a human resource executive, that you are lockstep in 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 with the business to understand the future. And so you can do really a gap analysis and say, based on where the business is going, here are the four things where we've got significant gaps in the organization and what are we going to do to close the gaps and how do we measure that? So you just got to get really practical when you're, you know, now if you're, if you're an HR person and you're just doing administration, you know, if you're that kind of, you know, more like personnel than human resources, that's a different thing. But if you're really, uh, a company, a famous company like that is PepsiCo, where HR people are very powerful and they really help pick leaders and they understand the business is going. That's what I always try to emulate is HR people. Uh, if you don't know where the business is going and you're not lockstep and you don't have the ability to sit down with your leader and literally hit the hip and say, where's the business going? And are we prepared from a talent standpoint, from a structure standpoint, from a governance standpoint? If you're not in lockstep with that and understand how to build the resources towards the goal where the company is going, then you're going to be a very ineffective HR executive because you, you're blind otherwise. You just don't know where the business is going and there's no way to ever catch up because you're always behind. So it, for me, it's you got to get ahead of the business and you got to get ahead of the business from knowing where the business is going strategically. Otherwise, you never really catch up. And you don't get the trust because you don't know the business. But if you're if you're right there, you know, I hate to I kind of hate the word at the table because that's so overused, but <laughs> but if you but you know, if you're if you're locked up with your executive and then they they know that wow, Audra's out there and she knows that, you know, based on where we're going, here's an example, you know, Domino's Pizza years ago decided to be a technology company that happened to sell pizzas. Well, that worked, you know, with the, you know, the one touch order pizza and it's quick. And the CEO decided, well, we're going to be a technology company that happens to sell pizzas to pay the bills. So if you're the HR person, you go, okay, well, we have to have a whole different level of technology individuals that can build apps and build speed and be able to, you know, connect that with the business that actually cooks the pizzas. And so, you, you know, it's, we're, we're here to build a business. We're here to serve the customer. We are here to create return and investment for our uh, stockholders. So how do we do that through the business? And yet how does HR provide the talent and the structure necessary to be successful as a business? You can't just be HR people that sit in the back and clean up after the aftermath. You have to be right out in front so you understand what's happening and you can contribute to the business really almost greater than anybody else. Wow. I hope you all were taking notes because these are gems. Wow, Brian, thank you so much uh, for being with us today. It's always fun to be able to talk about stuff <laughs> with you, Audrey. And you already know where you sit 
in terms of my heart. You're just amazing. I've learned a lot from you. And I hope our listeners will walk away with the same feeling, passion, and just wanting to be a better leader. So thanks for tuning in. And as always, if you enjoyed this episode, please go to your uh, platform of choice and subscribe, share, download all the things and let us know what you think. And Audra, before we leave, I just want I want to say you are a brilliant talent and people that listen to you, they're going to be very encouraged by what they learn. Oh, thank you, Brian. Until next time. Thanks for tuning in to Mastering Executive Leadership with Audra Christie. Please visit us at www.mindsetchangecoaching.com for more valuable resources to help you lead with purpose and impact.